So again, you guys realize he is like postponing the answer. Okay, Peter, he's tried everything. I'm, I'm, I'm not treating a finding, I'm treating a patient. And you're right. And so, and that's a very good point. So in all fairness to you, that's true. So the patient has tried every single type of compression. They even use pump therapy, okay? They, um, it, they work as a uh, in the post office and they're at risk for losing their job because their leg hurts them so much as the day progresses. So before you answer the question, Rob, am I painting a picture here that is like, you know, like you're in the shower and the steam is on the, on the windows and you don't know what's going on? Or is this like, am I giving you, you're, you're muted, go ahead. I'll be honest with you, Steve, uh, you know, I don't see a lot of those patients, you know, it's somebody with deep venous reflux, common femoral vein, femoral vein, popliteal vein, they've more, you know, 80, 90% of the time, they've got a central venous obstruction somewhere. Yeah. Um, doesn't need to be completely occlusive. So to, to, to see isolated deep venous reflux, that's a little rare for me. And uh, again, I, I don't want to steal anybody's thunder, but you know, we don't have any options for that. At least none, none that I think that are reproducible and worth subjecting a patient to risk for now just for leg swelling. I'm Dr. Steve Elias, and welcome to the Vein Podcast. Respect the elders, embrace the new, and encourage the improbable and impractical without bias. Welcome, everybody, to another uh, Vein Podcast uh, sponsored by uh, Radcliffe Vascular. And uh, today we're going to talk about a uh, topic that we've kind of been avoiding in the vein world, and maybe it's because we just don't have all that much to to offer for these patients, but really we're gonna call this the final endovenous uh, frontier, infrainguinal deep disease. And we're gonna talk about infrainguinal deep disease from many aspects, um, both uh, reflux disease, uh, thrombotic disease, obstructive disease, and talk a little bit about what we think we can do now. And more importantly, what I wanna get from our uh, panel is uh, what do we perhaps need in the future? Uh, our panel today is uh, Kush Desai. He's an interventional radiologist from the Chica from Chicago. Uh, I tried to have two interventional radiologists, two vascular surgeons on on here. Uh, Brian D. Robertus, who's uh, from UCLA, uh, he is a, vas a vascular surgeon. And uh, then we have Peter Glavitsky, also a vascular surgeon from uh, Mayo Clinic. And rounding it out is another interventional radiologist, uh, Rob Lookstein from. Uh, and Sinai Hospital in uh, in New York. So we have a nice balance. Everybody here treats uh, deep disease uh, all over the place, not just in the infrainguinal disease. And I, I kind of want to start out uh, a little bit. Um, and uh, Brian, let me start out with you. So do you salivate when you see a patient that has some post-thrombotic infrainguinal disease and like the iliacs are pretty good? and um, the saphenous has been taken care of, and they got a swollen leg and they have an ulcer. Is this the kind of patient like you just can't wait to treat? <laughs> Funny you should ask that, because when you asked me to be on this podcast, I, I started salivating until I saw the topic of infrainguinal. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, oh, geez. <clears throat> um, no, I, I, I certainly, I think those, these are the, the, the difficult patients for us to treat without question. 
And, um, and you already sort of hit on the, the first thoughts that I have every time I see one of these patients. I, I think about their iliacs, <clears throat> I think about their superficial venous reflux, um, and I make sure that those, those have been assessed properly because you don't wanna be fixating on someone with infrainguinal occlusive venous, venous occlusive disease and not appreciate that they have some uh, iliac venous, uh, deep, deep iliac venous disease that you could treat to actually make them much better. So you do wanna do some imaging, I think, in these patients to, to look at all of these other areas that, that we know we have good results uh, for treatment. Once you do that, then I think the next step that you didn't mention is looking for perforators, uh, feeding the, the venous ulcer. And I think that's sort of bridging that deep and superficial venous system. I think those are the other uh, things to think about. Um, but beyond that, I, I don't think right now we have a lot to offer for these patients with, with infrainguinal occlusive disease. I wouldn't yeah. say we have nothing to offer, but we don't have any great solutions. Right. And we're going to get into that. So, so Peter, let me give you uh, another scenario. You have a patient who has a... Uh, Sw really swollen leg and uh, unilateral and iliacs are fine. They've never had a DVT before. Uh, somebody decided to ablate a saphenous vein that's about five millimeters in diameter and uh, had a few little varicosities. And the patient comes to you and says, I still have a swollen leg and all you find is reflux, common femoral vein, femoral vein and popliteal vein reflux. Is this the kind of patient you just can't wait to treat? Well, we see patients because nobody wants to see it. So where do they come? They come to the Mayo Clinic. Right. Um, the fact is that uh, you really want to uh, define the cause of the swelling. If the patient's primary problem is swelling, it's unilateral. You want to be sure it's not a lymphedema. Uh, and and uh, that is very important. Then, as Brian says, you want to exclude any proximal venous obstruction. And if 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 it if it if it really looks like it is a venous uh, uh, problem, then you want to have a complete picture of the uh, venous anatomy and function. Right. So uh, I want to know, uh, you know, what's the uh, uh, deep venous situation, and you mentioned that this patient may have uh, nothing else but deep vein valve incompetence. No, no, Peter, I didn't mention this patient may just have it. I said this is all the patient has. You spent, you spent, the, you, spent you spent the beginning here avoiding the answer. So the so my question to you is. This patient has nothing else wrong with them. Let's assume somebody with half a brain, like one of us on this panel figured out there's nothing else wrong and all they got is deep venous reflux from common femoral, femoral and popliteal. What? Okay, so, so then, then what are the patient's clinical uh, symptoms and, and what kind of conservative treatment has she received? So again, you guys realize he is like postponing the answer. Okay, Peter. He's tried everything. No, I'm, I'm, I'm not treating a finding, I'm treating a patient. And you're right. And so, and that's a very good point. So in all fairness to you, that's true. So the patient has tried every single type of compression. They even use pump therapy, okay? They, um, it, they work as a, uh, in the post office and they're at risk for losing their job because their leg hurts them so much as the day progresses. 
So before you answer the question, Rob, am I painting a picture here that is like, you know, like you're in the shower and the steam is on the on the windows and you don't know what's going on? Or is this like, am I giving you, you're, you're muted, go ahead. I'll be honest with you, Steve, uh, you know, I don't see a lot of those patients, you know, it's somebody with deep venous reflux, common femoral vein, femoral vein, popliteal vein, they've more, you know, 80, 90% of the time, they've got a central venous obstruction somewhere. Yeah. Um, doesn't need to be completely occlusive. So to, to, to see isolated deep venous reflux, that's a little rare for me. And uh, again, I, I don't want to steal anybody's thunder, but you know, we don't have any options for that. At least none, none that I think that are reproducible and worth subjecting a patient to risk for now just for leg swelling. So uh, it's a, it's a, that's a very rare clinical presentation, at least in my practice. Absolutely. I mean, uh, this is a rare situation. Right. And especially if it's a congenital valvular agenesis, I've seen maybe two patients or three with this, you know. So what I'm saying is that uh, if that's the only th problem, number one, I really want to exclude, I might even uh, order a lymphocytogram. Uh, if the clinic, if if it if it looks clinically that it's a lymphedema, but if it doesn't, and let's say the lymphocytogram is negative, you can have patients with with primary uh, or congenital deep vein valve incompetence. Then you want to know: Does this patient have valves at all that's repairable? And uh, and go from there. Okay, so so I, I was gonna save this part to a little bit later on, but we're, but we're into it right now. So I agree with you guys that that is a rare situation. So my next question is, and I'll ask Kush since he didn't say anything yet. <laughs> my, next my next question is, why then are there a fair number of companies, uh, and I'll give you my history about, you know, uh, working on deep venous valves uh, in, uh, in a little bit. But why are there so many companies then that are developing technologies or techniques to treat deep venous insufficiency if all of us tend to agree this is a very rare development? I mean, Kush, give me an idea. What do you think? Rob says he hardly sees these people. Peter says it's a very rare event. And I agree with both of them. Why then, Kush, because you have some, some sense about industry, why yeah. are we pushing to either percutaneous valve uh, placement or open valve placement? Well, so, you know, it's a great question. And everything we've done so far addresses obstruction. But we know that we're missing the reflux part of it. And reflux and obstruction are what contribute to ambulatory venous hypertension. So placing a stent in an iliac system or in a common femoral down to the profunda, treats the obstruction. We really got nothing for the reflux. And, you know, as I'm sure all of us tell our post-thrombotic patients, I'm gonna get you better. I'm not gonna get you all the way better. And so maybe there's this glimmer of hope that putting in a valve or doing an open valve repair might push them along further. But to your point, a lot of these companies are looking at, well, we're looking for patients to start our initial studies with primary valvular, congenital valvular insufficiency. I said, good luck, you'll power it by the year 3000. That's not gonna happen. You need to be pragmatic and you need to start looking at challenging patients right up front because 
Otherwise, if, if, you, if you want to answer the question, you need to start with real world patients, not with the ideal patients to meet some nebulous performance goal. Yeah, and, 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 and I agree. And, and uh, you know, all of us are excited by this. Many of us have dealt with this for quite a long time. I mean, honestly, I'll just give it a very brief. That's where I got into the vein world. I was lucky enough to be with a doctor up in Buffalo, Sid Tahari, that, that Peter knows. Vascular surgeon did one of the world's first vein valve transplants, axillary vein with a good valve transplanting it. Thinking back though, and I was a first year resident, and if it wasn't for him, I would not be talking to you guys now about vein disease because he got me into vein disease and that's where I always knew I wanted to wind up. But thinking back on it, we probably didn't realize the great majority of those patients were really post-thrombotics that really had obstructive symptoms more than reflux symptoms. So Peter, let me bring you back. You're, yeah. I'm gonna say you're younger than me, but not by that much, or maybe a little older than me, but not by that much, but we're around the same time. So my- well, question, I am younger than you. Right, that's true. So my question is, Peter, were we wasting our time in the past talking about valve repair, talking about valve transplant, when we really should have been spending our time doing what most of us do now, taking care of the obstructive aspect? Well, we did not waste our time. And, and when I said that it's a rare problem, valvular agenesis, congenital valvular agenesis is rare. But when we look at uh, non-thrombotic lower extremity reflux, that's actually quite frequent. Even in the, uh, in the uh, uh, SEPS trial that we did the, uh, on the perforating veins, when we did, uh, uh, as you remember, uh, endoscopic perforator ligations, there were more non-thrombotic than thrombotic patients who had incompetence. So when you talk about overall chronic venous insufficiency due to infraequinal disease, I think there are quite a few patients who have uh, a deep vein palm, uh, a primary valvular incompetence, the type of incompetent valve that Bob Kistner and and you know, Saturai and 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 others uh, and us repaired. You right, know, right, right. so what I am saying is that uh, even though uh, obviously we we all see more post-thrombotic patients, but there is a, a, a pretty large group of patients who have advanced chronic venous insufficiency and never had uh, documented deep vein thrombosis. Yeah. No, I, I, I would add to, to that. I, I think Kush really hit the nail on the head when he when he talked about the fact that um, these patients don't get all the way better. You know, I, I don't disagree with Rob that it's very unusual for us to see patients who have massive symptoms, significant swelling, and isolated deep venous reflux. But <clears throat> that's only because those patients that we see with that also tend to have some degree of iliac vein compression in the left side. They have some degree of superficial reflux, and so. We have things to do for those other areas, and and we do those. And, and but but you know, if you take your average vein patient with multiple complaints, albeit some of them are not very specific, maybe they're a little bit on the vague side, a little swelling, a little aching, pain, pain, etc. These patients never respond like an arterial patient with claudication. You know, SFA stenosis, you had the atherectomizer stent that they get 100% better the next day. And that's not a phenomenon we see in our venous patients. And that's probably because of that residual deep system reflex that, that we haven't addressed. You know, that's why they get 50% better, 75% better, manageable, but not, not 100% better. Yeah, and I, and I think the, the 
other thing about venous disease versus arterial disease is that all of the other veins, aside from the one that you either fixed or got rid of the obstruction, distally, they've been stretched, stretched for so many years, intramuscularly stretched, you know, all, just all over the place. And it's like, I tell patients, it's like blowing up a balloon. You blow up a balloon once or twice and let out the air, it goes back to its normal size. You blow up a balloon a hundred times, it's never going back to that size. So we have you know, we, we have multiple things. You've been stretching this for so long, you relieve the obstruction, you still have reflux. Those veins are just not getting back to where they were. And that's why with venous disease, it's not like you said, Brian, that we could say to somebody, we're going to take care of your arterial blockage. Tomorrow, you're going to feel a big difference. So that's our challenge to figure out what we can fix, what we can't fix, and setting the expectations. Now I'm going to go a little bit more into your guy's comfort zone a little bit. We're going to, we're going to move away from it. Okay. Um, Rob, why do we say in general, someone has infrainguinal acute venous thrombosis that all you do is anticoagulate? Why, why is that basically what we're saying at this point? I think we have no evidence that supports that a, um, um, aggressive approach, whether it's endovascular or, you know, surgical, um, changes the outcomes in terms of the patient's functional status of their limb or their quality of life. We've, we've never been able to prove definitively that a open femoral popliteal segment impacts a patient six months later, two years later, three years later. Um, we, we, believe it does because we're all, you know, vascular specialists and we like to do procedures, but we've never been able to prove it. Um, and so still to this day, uh, whether it's in the US, whether it's in, in, in Europe, all the randomized trials can't seem to identify a specific population that will improve with a more aggressive approach. And as a default, I think all of us on this call still are comfortable managing as, as first-line therapy, therapeutic anticoagulation for isolated femoral popliteal DVT. So uh, do you feel then, Rob, that we should not even pursue the idea of removing thrombus from infrainguinal veins? Ac acute or chronic? Acute. First of all, there is, I, no, there is no such thing as a chronic thrombus. So, so I would say that we have a half a dozen FDA-approved widgets that do it incredibly well. And I would say that we all use them typically in the setting of concomitant iliofemoral clot to make sure that you know most commonly in a, a patent popliteal vein has enough outflow to get up to the inferior vena cava. I, for one, am humbled by the amount of work that has gone into design trials by people, I, I'll you know, say, are much more thoughtful than I am about this, and still have not been able to come up with a signal on which patients, which clinical presentations, which anatomic subsets will clearly be benefited by an endovascular first approach. Um, the other thing on, on the other side of it is that I think 
all of us in our practice find that most patients, at least 80%, feel radically better after they've gotten a week of therapeutic anticoagulation. And it's so it is, it's so rare. And again, I'm, I'll be very humble. I think it's unpredictable still as to which patients will fail therapeutic anticoagulation and present to your office at the one week follow-up or the two week follow-up and say, you know, I just still don't feel better. I can't ambulate. The swelling is, is really debilitating. I can't resume my normal functional existence. It's rare. And yeah. I, I can't call them a priori. I, I just, I, I, I don't have that insight to be able to sort of, you know, sniff them out on the front end. No, I agree. Steve, Go ahead. One, you know, just to, just to be completely clear, I agree with Rob, but I want to be crystal clear that infrainguinal includes the common femoral vein. Yes. Fem pop segment to me reads as caudal to the profunda. So caudal to the profunda I would agree, and the thoughtful, much smarter people that have designed the trials have clearly shown that those patients really just don't get bad PTS. There's gonna be a lot of people that disagree with us, but I think that the data from an RCT that was rigorous proves that that's probably the case. For the common femoral vein, I think there's equipoise. If there's common femoral vein involvement and it's not really going above the inguinal ligament, then you look at the patient and I mean, I think all of us would agree that we've seen patients that don't have iliac extension of clot, have it focally into the common femoral vein above the profunda, and you look at their legs, and those are not the same patients as fem-pop segment patients. Those patients have more swelling. You can try the anticoagulation, maybe have them come back for a closer follow-up within the first week, and you know, you may find that some portion of them are actually not getting better at that same slope as the typical fempop patient. So Kush, I agree with you 100%. I, I, my, my semantics, I'm calling fempop infracommon femoral, like exactly. femoral vein and popliteal vein. Common femoral vein and, 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 and above, I discuss endovascular therapy. I, I really think that that is a patient where there's a much greater likelihood that they're going to fail anticoagulation. Maybe it's 30%, 40%. It is, it is not 15, 20% like you see in the, in the, just in the, in the, in the femoral vein. So I, I, I agree with you hundred percent. So can I, can I, uh, can I follow up with that real quick? And, and just, I think Kush, Kush to some degree uh, took away from a little bit of the point I want to make, but I, I want to ask Rob, since you mentioned, we don't, we can't identify those patients that won't, won't do well or will have residual severe symptoms with, with, uh, with disease isolated below the common femoral. What, what would you say about like a 22 year old uh, ultra marathon runner that runs in the mountains uh, 50 miles in a day and comes in with a significantly swollen calf after three days of anticoagulation for isolated femoral vein DVT? Do you think that patient falls into these trials and and what what would you what would you discuss with that patient if not some mention of endovascular therapy yeah so the only thing I, that I'll I'll share with you anecdotally is that I believe and I can't prove this that a completely 100% occluded popliteal vein is a different animal than a 100% occluded femoral vein and I think that the natural history of that is slightly different and in my you know, humble experience, I think that the patients that come in with 100% occluded popliteal vein, they're the most symptomatic. They have a difficult time really feeling that they're responding well to optimal medical management. 
And I, I do bridge a little bit of equipoise with them, okay? Partially thrombosed popliteal, I think they do very well. Isolated, complete thrombosis of the femoral vein, I think they do very well. And honestly, I wait with those two, you know, anatomic subsets for, for them to fail medical management. So, so let me ask you, when, and, and I agree with you, Brian, I mean, that's my, that's my thinking here. What if, what if we had a technology, okay? I'm, remember, I'm starting this sentence out with what if. What if we had a technology that would 100% remove all thrombus from common femoral to posterior tibial and had zero complications? Would you guys say, ah, we don't need it because anticoagulation is good enough? Peter. Of course we need it. We would need it. Anticoagulation is not perfect, but it is, that's the best we have. So, you know, to think that, you know, uh, patients with uh, uh, infraignal DVT with anticoagulation all will become normal, I mean, that's just, it's not happening. So, sure, if you have, if you have the, you know, the magic device that, that removes the clot, I am sure that, of course, you need a study, but I, you know, a comparative study, but I am sure that that will be better than heparin and uh, anticoagulation alone. Yeah. So you guys understand where I'm heading. I mean, I usually kind of start from, you know, let's, let's say, can we do, not say we can or can't do this. What if we can do this? Should we consider doing this? So Rob, you were starting to speak when Peter, I asked Peter the question. So, so answer this question, seriously. Yeah. Uh, don't don't be put off by the practicalities. If in fact we had a technology that could remove thrombus, common femoral, femoral, popliteal, and tibial, without any complication at all, would you say I'm not using it? I'm just going to put the patient on anticoagulation. No, I would again just to entertain your hypothesis. Yeah. I would <laughs> fully support exploring that technology in a prospective trial, ideally randomized, to, to, to prove its worth. Um, I'm, you know, again, just to be candid, I don't believe a technology without complications exists. No, it doesn't. I think we're all experts here, and we've all seen our, our colleagues and our friends show us cases unofficially at, at, at meetings when we used to meet face-to-face, -face, and we're just all like, oh my God, what did you do here? For something that that we all on this on this panel use could use with our eyes closed, we've used these tools a thousand times, five thousand times, and you still hear stories of somebody doing something where you can't understand how a patient got hurt. So uh, again, if there's no complications, that's great. I love studying those kinds of technologies. I'm I'm the skeptic one because I think if you put something out there, something bad's going to happen, and you have to prove its its worth in with prospective evidence. No, I'm I'm bringing a pie in the sky. You know, yeah. um, I, I'm not saying that's that's reality, but my my point is, I don't like to dismiss something based on the thought, oh, that's never going to happen. I would rather entertain, yeah, it might happen, and can we can we make it happen? Kind of idea. Because you have to. Yeah, the reason I would entertain it really is because of the patient that Rob brought up, which is the completely occluded popliteal vein. I mean, I got nothing for that patient. I can balloon them. I mean, I've tried, I've tried paclitaxel balloons. None of it works. It doesn't stay open. And I'm just sitting there saying, like, 
I'm sorry. I mean, there's really nothing we can do here. And I completely agree with Rob and, and Brian and, and Peter, where we said like, well, the femoral vein, who cares? Because what happens is if you have a good popliteal vein, you guys have all seen these venograms, you get that jog to a profunda collateral and it reconnects at the lesser trochanter. And those patients are completely, well, effectively asymptomatic, but that pop. So if your theoretical device could completely clean the pop up, then I think I, for that reason alone, I'd be fascinated. Yeah, and, and again, I, I, I'm just I'm I'm putting it out there because I do agree with you with the popliteal, and and in fact, when we started instead of putting the axillary valve transplant up in the femoral vein, we went down to the popliteal because you know as we all have said, it's the gatekeeper of the of the lower leg, um, whether it's obstructive or or reflux. Um, mm -hmm. it, so I want to get a little practical here. Um, what if if one wants to lice or treat some chronic disease in the femoral popliteal segment and you're gonna access, say, the tibial. Brian, what is, what is the, the, the biggest size French that you'll put in a, uh, in a, either a PT or an AT if you're gonna do some work in the femoral popliteal segment? Um, well, I don't know that I put bigger than a six French sheath in a, in a PT vein. Um, I'm not. I'm not sure why you would have to, depending on which devices you would use. But I. But I. I think that uh, putting a, a device, a sheath that is too big for a tibial vein, is less of a problem than the advantage you have of clearing that popliteal segment that we're talking about or other parts. So I'm. I'm not too concerned with with access size there. But I, I can't say I've done larger than a five or six French sheath in a tibial vein. Yeah, uh, Rob. I, I agree 100%. We're, we're usually, usually, usually using access at the ankle just to facilitate, you know, flossing in, in some way for a very complex reconstruction. Uh, and so if, you're, if your mainstay of therapy is going to be ballooning, you shouldn't need bigger than a six French sheath. I've gotten comfortable using these slender radial sheets at the ankle just because it's a slightly smaller crossing profile and you can get six French balloons through and balloon up to eight or even nine millimeters in the popliteal. But I, I have not found a need to go larger than that yet. Steve, are you referring to high tibial access? Because I think yeah. you need to be clear. Yes. High tibial, not yeah, at the like, ankle, right? Like up, like up. High, high tibial, I've done eight, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm talking ankle. So you can open up the, you know, the, the really have running room to open up the pop and get uh, at least one calf vein open to, you know, to dr drain the foot, drain the calf adequately. Yeah, no, what I, what I wanted the people to take away who, who's going to listen to this is, I, I mean, and I've used eights also in the high tibial as well. And I don't think it's, you know, there's five other tibial, tibial veins there, two perineals, two anterior tibial, another posterior tibial. Um, so I think you, you can go up to eight. I, I wouldn't do anything higher than, uh, than eight. Uh, let's talk about uh, popliteal. What's the biggest push? Uh, We've had this discussion before uh, using the uh, clot retriever or something like that. <laughs> what's, what's the biggest that you're going to put in the popliteal? Boy, so I'll tell you that um, I'm going to go back to your tibial comment. And I uh, just uh, last week, uh, the day before Thanksgiving, I put in a 12 French in the tibial. Um, and I did cat 12 through it. No problem. Um, ankle, ankle or high tibial? High tibial. High tibial. Okay. All right. um, oh, a 12. Okay. A 12. Yeah. And, you know, it's so dilated that when I pull it out and after we got, I put the purse string down, it still was dilated and filled with clot. Right. So in these acutely thrombosed tibials where 
there really isn't a whole lot of flow. And as you point out, you got six of them, take one out. And then you don't have to worry about the nerve. You can clear the pop and you don't have to worry about trashing the pop because of your access. And to your second question, the more recent question about, you know, accessing the pop, I worry about big access in the pop because that is the gatekeeper of the lower leg. So I'd much rather take out and be somewhat radical with the high tibial than with the pop personally. Yeah. I think that's, those are, those are uh, good thoughts. Uh, okay. Let's, let's move to really the, the biggest bugaboo because now we've already decided that, okay, acute thrombus anticoagulation, not a bad option infrainguinal people do fairly well. If we had the ideal device, we might consider doing it. Let's talk about the real problem that we all see more often in, in day to day, which is, you know, post-thrombotic chronic changes in, in the femoral popliteal common femoral segment, uh, whether that's the only problem or whether that's the beginning of a problem with extension into the uh, iliacs and we're concerned with, uh, with inflow into whatever we're going to do, uh, common femoral up. So let's talk about... Um, Brian, what are the kind of the things you might do if you felt you had a uh, compromised inflow into a segment of, uh, you know, iliac that you're going to stand, you're going to stand down to the common femoral just above your, uh, you know, profunda, but you don't have good inflow. Do you, what, do you do anything uh, to try and improve that inflow before you place a stent above? Uh, the way you phrase that, quite honestly, no, I, I don't, I don't do too much to improve that. And the reason I say that is because our, our inflow, if you have a profunda vein that's open, as long as you keep that stent in the common, but above the, the common, the confluence of the uh, femoral vein and profunda vein, you generally have good inflow. I think our inflow in general is better through the profunda than we can visualize and document. Um, so I don't worry as much about that femoral vein inflow. I, I think I'm getting most of my inflow from the profunda. But I do think it's important to make sure that you brought your iliac stance down as far to that confluence as you need to, to have good, to, to have to have your common femoral not be the, the uh, source of your inflow limit, limitation. So, yeah, no, I understand what you're saying. And I agree, if you have a good profunda inflow, but, but there are incidents, the patients that also have scarred profunda as well. And you don't have, have good inflow in, into those. And Peter, I'm going to ask you about the open options in a second, but, um, but Rob, what, would you not place a stent above something like that? Or would you try to do something to improve inflow? So I'll, I'll, I'll tell you about a case I did maybe six weeks ago. Um, somebody who came in with probably the most awkward venous ulcers I've ever seen from his popliteal fossa down to his ankles, circumferential around his whole leg, palpable pedal pulses, ABIs are one, and on duplex, every single thing below the common femoral vein, including the common femoral vein, is, is, is out. Um, his iliacs, the uh, lower external iliac uh, ethinguinal ligament was also completely occluded. Common iliac was open, cross-filling from the other side, all right? And so I went, I tried to access a tibial vein, couldn't get through the pop. I tried to access at the ankle, couldn't get through the pop. Ended up perforating in the thigh multiple times. Ended up getting jugular access. Ended up 
sticking the saphenous, which was open, uh, was able to dig through four centimeters worth of dense scar tissue in the common femoral, floss that out, got a second wire into the profunda through another four centimeters of scar tissue, did kissing balloons to open up the saphenous as the outflow from the calf and the deep femoral vein. This is where I, I wish that Peter was there to do an open endo, endovenectomy, okay? And, uh, and just kept on doing larger and larger and larger balloons, ended up with a 10 millimeter balloon into the deep femoral vein and an eight millimeter balloon in a kissing configuration in the saphenous. And six weeks later, all of his ulcers have granulated over. He's still getting wound care, but he's dramatically Im 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 improved. And his you know, venous hypertension claudication symptoms have radically improved also. And you know, I've, I've done that case maybe twice in my entire career, but that's the, the length that I will go when I see that there's no inflow whatsoever. Yeah. Right. But ideally, this patient should get an open repair. And I did stent down right above the confluence of the saphenous and the deep femoral vein. So let's talk a little bit. That's great. I mean, that's a that's a tour de force for sure. Um, Peter, but let's talk about uh, Rob brought it up. I brought it up. Are there still are open options still an option for gaining inflow or improving outflow for the leg? Well, it, uh, I would say it's not a frequent option, especially, you know, I, I, I have worked so many years with Harald Urbjarnason and he would just stand everything and he would be uh, very aggressive and he would even go to the origin of the profunda if that has to be done. But we had patients and we started to do the endoflabectomy with iliaquine stenting first. And uh, uh, there are clearly cases where even if you put your stent all the way down to the common femora, you don't get a good inflow. Uh, and uh, with open surgery at the end of lobectomy, you can actually open up f more flow from the, maybe the femora vein, vein, maybe from the saphenous vein and the profunda too. So uh, uh, these are these are the the, the the patients where we did endoflabectomy, uh, put a uh, uh, vein or bovine patch, and then uh, put the stent still all the way down to the uh, uh, very distal common femoral uh, vein. Uh, uh, but uh, we had a better inflow. I think it is a good operation. It has uh, problems because. Uh, it is still a thrombogenic surface, yeah. and uh, uh, and uh, yeah. uh, had a little bit better results than us with an AV fistula, and uh, you know Wittens in uh, in Holland uh, used fistula, but the fistula there is not without complications. Right, so, and, but but don't I mean maybe in your hands it's a relatively simple, straightforward operation, but in general. There's a lot of scarring in that area. Is a lot of issues that can occur when you're doing your dissection and stuff. So I, I don't think an endophlebectomy is like for every vascular surgeon in the world to do. I mean, don't you think it's a kind of a tough procedure? It, it's it's uh, not only that it's difficult, but also the minute you dissect the femoral vein and you want to put a stent in it, your vein is going to break because right. you know, uh, the 
the stent, especially if you dilate it, but, but the stent exerts a considerable pressure on this uh, very flimsy vein. Right. And we had to repair several times this dissected vein because stenting a dissected vein is not the same as stenting a vein without uh, surgical dissection. Yeah, I, I would I would also point out that I, I don't think it's a simple procedure, and and uh, and I think Dr. Levitsky is forgetting that he's an actual bona fide magician, and right. that is why this is being a, a a doable procedure for your average uh, mere mortal surgeon. No, it's not. It's 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 a it's a very very tough. I mean, even when we were trying to just get a segment of vein to put an axillary valve into it, it's 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 tough. Um, but just just let me tell you the real value of endophlebectomy that I did a few in uh, drug addicts who had a very segmental structure in, yeah. of the cochlear vein where the uh, they inject the uh, uh, the, uh, the the drug in the femoral vein, and that is an excellent operation. For instance, for you, have a, you have a very isolated segment. You have have a very have isolated portion. <laughs> So, so I want to bring you guys, we have a couple of more minutes and then we're going to close up. I want to bring you to the, um, to think of, Robbie already brought up that patient with an ulcer, to think of the concept of improving outflow from the femoral popliteal segment just enough, just long enough to get an ulcer to heal. Because as you all know, it's easier to keep something healed than to try to get it to heal. It's, it's the arterial concept. You know, you do some, some angioplasty, whatever, for a gangrenous toe. You know, it works long enough for the, the amputation site to heal. If it goes down, you don't like to go down, but at least you have a stable situation then. So I've, I've taken the approach. I want to know what you, what you guys think. Uh, a la Mark Garcia's access PTS trial, uh, to utilize angioplasty plus or minus some type of thrombolysis in the femoral popliteal segment, just to stretch those disease veins long enough and, and, and to stretch them enough to decrease the venous hypertension so that someone may heal an ulcer. And perhaps the longevity may not be years, but if it's a couple of months and it's a percutaneous procedure, is there a reason we shouldn't try this, even though we know results of, you know, venous angioplasty alone is not the greatest thing in the world, but should we take the concept that we're doing this so that we're just gonna heal an ulcer and then after that, it's gravy if it still is working? Kush, do you understand what I'm talking about? Yeah, no, so I mean, what I guess, my decision-making would be this. First, I would try and I would exclude pelvic disease. If no, there's pelvic disease, again, again, for this podcast, we're assuming everything else is taken care of. And gotcha. we're also assuming that what we're talking about with femoropopatial is the last thing any of us are going to attack in a patient with venous disease. So let's assume, okay. let's assume all that's been done. You still have an ulcer and this is what you're left with. Yeah. So if an ulcer has failed, uh, the bed being foamed, and it continues to, to be present to growing, getting worse, then I think, I mean, frankly, you have nothing to lose at that point. So I, I think there's value in trying that. But you, I, I personally would not take the approach of treating the FEMPOP segment before the ulcer and all that has been treated, because I think that's not quite the right message. <laughs> right. No, no, I'm agreeing. I mean, what I'm saying is this is all you have left. That 
then you have nothing to lose. Brian, you have any tips or tricks about angioplasty, plus or minus thrombolysis? You know, I, I, I uh, the access PTS trial notwithstanding, I, I have not found uh, thrombolysis to be helpful in, in these patients beyond any, you know, acute period. Um, so I, but I do agree that there's, there's little downside to angioplasty of the thermopopulsal segment. Um, there's also, I think, little downside to stenting these, which is, uh, of course, a very controversial thing. We all assume and, and to some degree know that, that uh, stents don't work in the femoral vein. But I will tell you, I've, I've stented about a dozen femoral veins, and they've and about half of those have stayed open, and they've stayed open long term, like literally multiple years later, they're still open. <clears throat> so that, that is, that's honestly surprised me. Um, and, and the ones that have occluded They've generally been patients with antiphospholipid antibody syndrome or some other aggressive uh, hematologic issue. So, so I, I don't think there's a downside to angioplasty. I haven't seen a particular benefit to lytics in people with with you know with true chronic occlusions. Um, but and I would say that you know along that idea of of, um, uh, of of there not being a lot of harm in doing it, I think if you have a segment that you plasty it, you can't get flow through it, you cannot got continuous flow through it leaving a stent in something that would otherwise just go on to occlude doesn't pose a lot of downside to me either, you know, and, and that I would, I would hedge on saying that simply because a year of anticoagulation, sometimes these things open up on their own as well. So I, I'm not saying there's no downside to putting in stents, but I've, I've been surprised at, at uh, the, the patency of stents in the ephemeral vein, which in my hands has been around 50%, which is not terrible, despite the fact that it's not great. You, you bring up a very interesting discussion because it's been kind of a no-no uh, in, in almost everybody universally do not stent the, the femoral vein. Um, Rob, what do you think of that? Should, should we do more of this and see what happens? So I, I've done that also, and I, I will echo Brian's sentiment, you know, half of them stay open, half of them don't. The, 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 the common situation the, the more the most common situation is that everything is a is a total cord from the femoral vein confluence down to the pop, and uh, maybe the pop is partially scarred down, and you're trying to do whatever you can. So if if you aggressively angioplasty that, and you have one area where there's a calcified valve or something, and it's it's recoiling right there on the table. I think, sure, of, of course, the, the concept is almost like attack. You just want something focal to just open that one little area. And again, I've done that. I, I think that works fine. It's That's not common. No. Um, what's unfortunately more common is you balloon the entire femoral vein. It's 40 centimeters worth of angioplasty, and you can't keep it open at all. And then to put 40 centimeters worth of metal in someone's femoral vein, I, it, that's very hard to, to palate. And, and I think that our conventional wisdom of don't do that falls into that category. We don't want to open up the floodgates and tell people cross every femoral vein fibrotic case and put full metal jacket because nobody here thinks that's ever going to work ever. The one thing that I've become a little bit more bullish about is somebody with a um, post-thrombotic calf in the setting of a completely occluded popliteal vein. And again, the common femoral veins open, the deep femoral veins open, the iliacs are wide open, but they're really miserable and they're having a hard time maybe managing an intermittent ulcer. Maybe they're diabetic. 
I've, I've gotten a little bit more, you know what, if I can cross this palpatial and angioplast it to your previous question, keep it open for six months, stabilize that patient, even if it goes down six months later, that's a win for that patient because they're able to live six months, much more stable, possibly heal a wound. And so I'm doing that, not that it's a huge part of my practice, but I've probably done a half dozen in the last 12 to 18 months. And I would say more universally, the patients are improved as a result of that in- intervention. Yes, and I and I agree. Angioplasty. Yeah, and I, and I and I agree. And and I've become much more aggressive too. You know, uh, we have a huge wound center at Englewood, and and I think these are the people that you really do push the the envelope uh, on. And I think what people should take away from this is that a lot of us here are pushing the envelope. And as Chris said, there's not all that much downside, and there can be an upside on these people. And if your goal is not, you know, five-year patency, but your goal is healing an ulcer, that's a whole different story. So lastly, Peter and everybody, get to it. Peter, what is it that we really, really need in the femoropopatial segment to make these, to make patients better? Give me one technology. I don't care if you think it's never going to work. If you could design it, what do you think? I give you two technologies. Two, not just one. Okay, what do you got? Uh, 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 as you know, I am editing with Peter Lorenz, the Journal yep. of Gastrosurgery, Venous and Lymphatic Disorders. And we have two great papers, or let's say promising papers in the pipeline that's relevant to our discussion. The one is the first ever human trial using the novel bioprosthetic venovalve in patients with chronic venous insufficiency. This is a, a Californian company, and the trial was done in Bogota, Colombia, by Dr. Yeah. Ulva. Yeah, no. First 10 patients, it was presented at the uh, American Venus Forum meeting. So uh, keep your eyes open for that. It's already uh, on PubMed and indexed and viewable. The other one comes from Australia just accepted today, so I am free to tell you that it's in press. It is also, uh, it was presented at the American Venus Forum meeting. It is uh, on an endovascular procedure of endovenous valve formation. Yeah. Uh, and you know this technique, uh, uh, this is the uh, first uh, 14 patients. And uh, again, both of these are promising uh, early results of a technique that appears to be safe with minimal thrombotic complication. Right. So, so this so, is the use of it. Right. But these are both for, for reflux. And, for reflux. Right. And just full disclosure, I, I've actually put in a couple of those valves that uh, Jorge has done in Colombia in the jugular vein of, uh, <clears throat> of uh, pigs before he started doing it in man. And I think it's a, it's a good, it's a nice procedure. But as we said, that's the rarer event. Talk to me a little bit more about um, push. Talk to me, and we're going to finish up here. Talk to me more about the uh, the post thrombotic people that have what we we've been talking about. The changes. What is it? What would be nice if we had something? What would be nice is something that can treat the common femoral vein without having to extend a stent below the inguinal ligament, subjected to the mechanical stresses that we all talk about, which the manufacturers are now talking about, now that we're on to our fourth uh, on-label venous stent in the United States with several more coming. Something that we could use that doesn't require 
a high degree of, of, of specialization and expertise that Dr. Klavitsky has and Dr. Komarota have to do endophlebectomy that could treat it and then we're done with it. And then laying the stent within the non-mechanical portion of the pelvic veins, the iliac veins, that's no problem. That, I mean, if you want me to ask for my Christmas list, that's that, that device. Ryan, what do you want? Um, I'm going to say the thing we need, we already have, and that's the art of medicine. Uh, and I, and I, I hate to, to, to slam Rob's, um, you know, reliance on data and promote things that are not data driven. But I do think that I do think that we, you know, trials like Cavent and Attract and, and, and others, I think they've made it so that we feel very dogmatic about what we should and shouldn't do. And I would just like to sort of remind all of us that there's so much we do in medicine that is not at all supported by data. And then we come out with a randomized trial about one specific thing, and we then have to feel like we have to adhere to the results of that very specific randomized trial with all of its enrollment issues and biases and things like that. And so I think that my biggest thing I struggle with is that post-thrombotic 24-year-old who's very active, who I see only six months after they've been on anticoagulation, and no interventionalist has talked to that patient about other options to consider. Not that we would do those things, not that I would lice every 20-something-year-old with a, with a femoral vein DBT, but but I you know I would probably anticoagulate him for four days and then check in with them and then and try to get to them in that couple of week window to lice them uh, so that they don't show up three months or six months later because once you're honestly at six months later with severe PTS there's I can't even imagine what what options would would work well for those patients going forward you know yep okay so I I kind of I kind of agree with you but you use the word lice them. As Rob pointed out in the beginning of this, we have a lot of new technologies that don't require, require thrombolytics to, to remove thrombus. And, and that may be the kind of person you want to use it on, somebody that you can quickly get out of fresh thrombus and, and efficiently. So, Rob, your, your, your wish, what do we need? Aside uh, from, aside yeah, from I'll, people, I'll people like Brian. I'll, I'll, I'll go to something that we don't have. Go I ahead. would... You know, to, to the to the previous conversation and and Brian's um, you know experience using uh, I'm going I'm to use the term scaffolds uh, for the femoral vein and or popliteal vein. I think it would be fascinating to explore the concept of a bioresorbable scaffold. And I know Brian's working on a technology for the below knee arterial circulation, but to try and you know uh, capitalize on that for the femoral popliteal venous circulation. So something that's able to, to keep a recalcitrant vein open for six months, resorbs, so you're not leaving permanent metal in the patient, but just enough to our previous comment that you can heal the wound, uh, alleviate some of the PTS, get the patient stabilized, get them into you know, stockings that are working, give them some functionality, and then let it, let it go away. I, I think that would be an intriguing technology. It might not be as big a market, as you know, chronic limb-threatening ischemia, but I certainly think that the more that we are entertaining these infrainguinal interventions, we're going to need something. And a permanent implant, I think, just doesn't really sit well with any of us. Yeah, and I, and I think that's great. I think that's a great way. I mean, that that's kind of where my mind is going. I think we need to. If I had to do something, I wasn't even thinking of, of placing some bioabsorbable. I was thinking of kind of more like a a good device that does a real good endophlebectomy from inside that basically just, you know, reams out all that, all the stuff. And, and then if you could treat the, the vein that you just, 
you know, reamed out with, with some medication so it doesn't uh, thrombose, uh, that would be great. But, but I think and my, my intent of this discussion with all of you guys who are fantastic ideas and fantastic discussion was that we need to realize the, the infrainguinal femoropopatial segment is important that we just can't ignore it and say, we're gonna do nothing, forget about it. And um, the concepts of stenting, the concept of, of plasty, the concept of early thrombus, I think it's all gonna hopefully sort itself out. I think we need to be more aggressive. As Kush says, if we do it pretty right, we're not gonna make the patient that much worse. We may make them better. If we take the concept, we're not looking for perfection, but enough improvement over for a short enough time so the patient can heal an ulcer, say, or whatever. We're not doing this for varicose veins. We're doing this for end-stage disease. So, I mean, I, I think it was a really a great discussion, and it, it brought out the theme of this uh, podcast and the theme of what I think everyone should approach medicine and maybe life with, which is, you know, respect the elders, embrace the new, and encourage the improbable and impractical without bias. And, and that's the way I think we need to think about this and certainly this infrainguinal uh, issue that most of us have just given up and said, oh, there's nothing we can really do on it. So um, thank you guys a lot for this. This was uh, really uh, very enlightening to me also. And um, we look forward to seeing where this is going to go. All right. So See, thank, thank you, you all. Invitation. Thank, thank, thank you. you. We hope you enjoyed today's Vein podcast in association with Radcliffe Vascular. We aim to bring you important topics from the Vein world, either topics that we ourselves feel are important or you, our listeners, feel are important. So review us on your favorite podcast app or send your thoughts, comments, and questions to podcast at Radcliffe with an E-group.com. That's podcast at Radcliffe-group.com. You can also register to access newsletters, videos, and peer-reviewed journal articles. Thank you. Glad you listened. This is Dr. Steve Elias, and we'll see you on the next Bain podcast.